0: Hi, family. I'm so glad you're with us tonight, and uh, boy, do we have an exciting study tonight. We're going to talk about why the church should stand with Israel. Now, this is an exciting Bible study. This is not a political statement. Uh, This is not a statement against Arab peoples. This is not a statement against people who are suffering on either the Jewish side or the Arab side. But we're going to talk about what the Bible says about Israel, and why the church should stand with Israel. And it's not stand with Israel right or wrong. And I'm saying all of that up front because I have some friends that, you know, they're so pro-Israel, Israel Israel can do no wrong. And then I have some friends that they're so anti-Israel because they believe that the Bible teaches that the church has replaced Israel. And we're gonna address all of that tonight. And I hope that you're going to enjoy this study. Well, I thought I would start with something that I wrote for you this evening and um i want you to know that as far as my thinking on israel and what i'm going to share with you i am the product of a lot of teachers a lot of research on my own from the bible uh, from the time that i was very young i've heard about israel i've heard prophetic preaching about israel i've heard preachers with big charts and so It's like all of my life, and if you grew up in in a church like I grew up in, you've heard Israel talked about, not just in your Sunday school lessons about Noah and the ark, or Abraham, or David, and Goliath, but so many things about Israel. Then when I began to study for the ministry, and then I began to do some of my graduate work studying, I realized that a lot of what I had learned and heard, I kind of had to... Relearn, And then I had to really just dig down, not for what a teacher said or a preacher said, but go to the word. And that's one of the things I've always taught you here at Woodland. Don't just take my word for it, but go home, study the word, look at the scriptures. I appreciate the fact that I'm trusted. Somebody called me the other day and says, I need to know what you think about this. I trust you. And it was from someone here in our community, and I said, I'm very grateful for that, but I'm going to share scriptures with you, and you need to go back and look at that in context, especially if you're going to make a decision on that. Paul commended the Berean believers because that's exactly what they did. So here's a very important statement that I, want to, that I wrote for you, and I want you to kind of follow along with me because I'm gonna stop and make some comments as I read it. The gospel is the story of a Jewish Messiah. That Messiah is Jesus. The story of a Jewish Messiah, the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. Jewish Christians proclaim that good news to Gentiles of polytheistic religions. Polytheism is where you believe in more than one God. For instance, the Greeks had a whole pantheon of gods. The Romans had a pantheon of gods, plus Caesar. So when you read polytheistic, it's people who believed in more than one God. Uh, Judaism was unique in that it was monotheistic. You've got to remember, uh, Islam would not come along for a long, long time after the gospel. The church would be well-established, and, and then Muhammad would have his so-called vision, and so then you would be, you'd have another monotheistic religion come along. But at that time in the world, Judaism was the only monotheistic religion that we're aware of. So they proclaimed the good news or the gospel to Gentiles, The polytheistic religions. Now, that statement is important. Circle the word Jewish Christians because by and large, the church you read about in the book of Acts, especially in the first 12 chapters of Acts, is a Jewish church. The apostles were Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. The apostle Paul was Jewish. And so what you're reading about is a Jewish church that's evangelizing the Gentiles. You'll see why that's important later on in the message tonight. Those Gentiles who trusted in Christ were not required to be circumcised, but were embraced by a church of primarily Jewish people. Now, that's a huge deal. If you remember in the Book of Acts, it's a huge deal in the New Testament. Uh, there were some Jewish believers who thought that that Gentile Christians men ought to be circumcised, and Paul saw that as as salvation by works? And he says, no, this is all by faith. And so the the Jewish church that prevailed said, no, Gentiles don't have to be circumcised because circumcision, listen, this is important. Circumcision was a sign of the covenant of promise of the land. We'll get to that in a few minutes. So this little paragraph is dense that I I wrote for you. and, And it's so much here that I want you to hang on to. The church embraced them. Now notice, The church embraced them as participants in their Jewish faith in Jesus, spiritual children of Abraham. Now, why is that statement so important? Because Paul and Jesus and the apostles did not see the gospel as anti-theatrical to Judaism. But they saw the gospel and the cross as fulfilling Judaism. Jesus said, I've come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Exactly right. So that's another very, very important statement. And that is that Christianity is the fulfillment of what Judaism was all about. Now, a lot of my Jewish friends would disagree with me on that. And there's reasons for that that I won't have time to get into in this message tonight. I'll allude to it a couple of times. But there's reasons that, unfortunately, um, along about the second century, there was a a teacher, a brilliant man, who would take and um, he was martyred for the faith, but he would take and spiritualize and make analogies of truth. And he was disappointed that the Jews didn't come to know Christ. And so he said the church replaced Israel. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that. And then another preacher would come along, great man, great preacher, but he was disappointed. So he said, not only of the Jews, but everybody else that can't come to Jesus. He said some cruel things. And then later on, Martin Luther, who's often, you know, commented about that he was anti-Semitic. At first, Luther was just so hopeful the Jews would come to Jesus. But he was so disappointed. It was not just the Jews. It was Turks. It was so many other peoples that he said some of the bad things that he said about because they didn't come to the gospel. The point I'm making in all of that is don't look at me. This is important. Look, And those of you watching online, write this down. Don't take one simple statement that somebody takes out of context as saying the church is either anti-Semitic or that maybe Paul was anti-Semitic. Paul was a Jew. He was not an anti-Semite. Jesus was a Jew. He was not an anti-Semite. Anything that the church that has done anti-Semitic is not Paul's fault It's just not Jesus' fault. It's the fault of those that chose to be hateful when God called us to be loving. Can you say amen to that? It's just so very important. Well, let's look at this verse of Scripture. Now that you belong to Christ, Galatians 3.29, now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. That's you and me. I'm a child of Abraham tonight. Not racially, not racially, but I'm a true child of Abraham. I am one of his heirs according to the Scripture because god's promise belongs to me it belongs to you if you have faith in jesus because it's faith that makes you a child of abraham yes there is a racial descendancy if that's the correct way to say it there's racial descendants but jesus looks at it and the bible looks at it as the fulfillment abraham's family was to be a blessing to all the nations of the world so they would come to know god Again, I don't have time, but did you know the Old Testament has a number of stories in it about Gentiles who became Jews? And that the Old Testament has stories about some Gentiles that became a part of the Jewish family, but they were never circumcised. And so that's another sermon for another time. So this is all very, very important. The new converts, the apostle Paul said in the early church recognized, they were inwardly circumcised. That's what it meant to have faith in Christ. What the outward circumcision meant was about a covenant concerning the land. It was definitely a racial thing. It was a covenant concerning the land. But when they denied the polytheistic gods, when they took up their cross and they followed Jesus, they trusted Jesus and Jesus alone for salvation, there was an inward circumcision of the heart. For you or not, if you will look with me at Romans chapter 2 and verse 28, you're not a true Jew just because you were born of Jewish parents or because you've gone through the ceremony of circumcision. Hard stop right there. He's not denying the racial descendancy. He's talking about faith here. Abraham believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. This is all about faith right here. No, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. Again, it's not about racial descendancy, but it's about faith. Faith. And true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law. Rather, it is a change of heart produced by the Spirit. And a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God and not from people. Well, that's what Jesus was getting at with the Beatitudes. The Ten Commandments are vital. They're very important to us. But if we keep them outwardly, but we're not keeping them from our heart, then Jesus said that we're guilty of breaking those laws. So it's not a matter of just... Observing outwardly. I mean, if I hate my neighbor, but I'm outwardly not hurting my neighbor, I've still sinned. So God wants me to have a change of heart. That's what becoming a Christian does. God changes our hearts. Next, these new covenant believers, and I'm using the phrase new covenant here because Jesus says, I'm establishing a new covenant with you at the cross. These new covenant believers viewed these new Gentile believers as grafted into Israel while unbelieving branches were broken off. Now, if you remember in Matthew chapter 21 and verse 43, Jesus said to the Jews who wouldn't follow him, he said, the kingdom of God is actually going to be taken away from you and given to people who would be fruitful. And so the unbelieving Jews who didn't follow God found themselves missing out on God's blessings that God brought to the church. This is an important statement I'm going to make. You may want to write this down on your outline. Rebellion will keep you from the blessings of God. Rebellion, disobedience, unbelief will keep you from the blessings of God. And the church is who experienced and received the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you read like in 1 John, you've received an anointing. That word is is chrism. It's the Greek word for anointing. And when you receive the Holy Spirit, then you get the charisma, the charisma. You get the, 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 the presence of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So let's look at this passage of Scripture in Romans 11, verse 17. But some of these branches from Abraham's tree, some of the people of Israel have been broken off. Why? Because of unbelief. And you Gentiles who were branches from a wild olive tree, you've been grafted in. So now you also receive the blessing God has promised Abraham and his children, sharing in the rich nourishment from the root of God's special olive tree. Family, who is the special olive tree? It's Israel. (laughs) Somebody say, come on, victory tonight. That's what I mean that when I say it was a Jewish church, Believing in a Jewish Messiah, Christianity was a fulfillment of Judaism. So there's this huge witness that Jews and Christians have together to the faith. The Bible never says that the church replaces Israel, but salvation comes to all people, Jew and Gentile, through faith in Jesus Christ. So the church doesn't replace Israel. God has a plan for Israel, but it's not a plan about salvation. Israel's salvation comes through the cross, just like yours and mine come through the cross. And today, while there has been for quite a number of years now, there's just this huge revival of people that are coming to know Jesus Christ who are Jewish. I watched this afternoon uh, just a bit of a message by a friend of mine who's Jewish and who crossed the line. I mean, he studied to be a rabbi, he is a rabbi. And he became a passionate follower of Jesus Christ. I, the reason I watched it, I just wanted that reminder. Yes, here's another one. And he pastors a very large congregation of Jewish people. And so there is this revival. The church doesn't replace the nation of Israel, but the church in Israel are saved through the one and same plan that God established, and that was the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, I say, Pastor, why is this so important? Why are well, you drilling down on that? Because I want to talk to you for just a few moments about why we should stand with Israel, prophetically speaking. And there's a group of people who teach a doctrine called supersessionism, which just simply means that the church has replaced Israel. There's no place in the Bible that teaches that. The Bible does call us true Israelites because we put our faith in Christ. So let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and verse 10. They speak of how you look forward to the coming of God's Son from heaven, Jesus whom God raised from the dead. He's talking about other believers. He is the one who's rescued us from the terrors of the coming judgment. We talked about last week from Zechariah 14, we talked about the coming day of judgment that's going to come about. Previous to that, we talked one night about the promise of the children and the old people playing in the streets together. On another night, we talked about the spirit of grace and supplication being poured out upon Israel. We looked at that huge battle where God said, God says, I'm going to gather all the nations against Israel. Those prophecies have not been fulfilled. And one of the reasons I wanted to look at this book and preach to this book it's because Jesus quoted from it more than any other book in the Bible in his ministry. And the more I meditated on it and prayed about it, I realized we needed to make a connection between Daniel, Revelation, which we've already preached through, and through the book of Zechariah to prepare ourselves for what we believe will be soon, and that's the rapture of the church. We believe it could happen tonight, but we're going to plan that we're going to be living for another 500 years. So we're not going to a mountain and just waiting on Jesus. We're going to occupy till he comes. But we do believe that there's nothing that holding Jesus back except for God's love for lost people. So what's he rescuing us from? That day of terrible judgment that's coming upon this world when God gathers the nations. That's what Paul's referring to here. Look at Romans chapter 11, verse 26 with me. This is what we read about last week in Zechariah 14. And so all Israel will be saved. Underline that in your outline. If you're using the app, I believe you can highlight it in the app. And so all Israel will be saved. If the scripture says the one who rescues will come from Jerusalem, that's Jesus. And he will turn Israel away from ungodliness. And this is my covenant with them. I will take away their sins by the cross, by what Christ did at the cross. And many of the people of Israel are now enemies of the good news and this benefits you Gentiles, yet they are still people, the people he loves, that God loves, because he chose their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for God's gifts and calls can never be withdrawn. Now, notice this. Underline, all Israel will be saved. There's going to come a day where there's going to be a great national revival in Israel. I believe that's going to happen, as we looked at last week, when Christ returns. We looked at it in Zechariah 14. The Mount of Olives will be split in half. And so I've already got, you want to listen to that message from last week. But he says the one who rescues, that's Jesus. What will he do? He will turn Israel away from ungodliness. And he will take away their sins. Let's do another hard stop right there. Look at me for just a second. Because somebody is an enemy of the gospel doesn't mean they're a personal enemy of ours. Okay? But anyone who doesn't believe God is an enemy of the gospel. Doesn't mean they necessarily hate you or dislike you. I have lost friends that have not given their lives to Jesus yet. They're my friends. I think they would help me if I needed help. But when it comes to the gospel, they are not a friend of the gospel. They're not a they they don't believe in Jesus. they don't want to live like Jesus has called us to live. so they're enemies of the gospel. Now, there are other people. They are not only enemies of the gospel, but they're your enemy as well. If you don't believe like they believe, they feel like it's their obligation to kill you because their religion teaches that you ought to be killed. It's the reason that we had a missionary and his two sons burned to death in Northern India because a crowd of of people of another religion gathered around their car, hated the fact that they were there, gassed their car, torched their car, And nobody could get to them to help them simply because they wanted to erase the name of Christianity and get rid of these missionaries. So, friends, understand, not everybody that's an enemy of the gospel is necessarily a personal enemy. But they're an enemy of God because they don't believe the gospel. So God says, I'm going to take away their godliness. I'm going to take away their sins. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't love them. It doesn't mean that God doesn't love my neighbor who doesn't believe the gospel yet. He says, many of these people of Israel, their enemies of the good news. This benefits you, yet they are still the people he loves because he chose their ancestors. And God's gift and his call to Israel can never be withdrawn. Look at Zechariah 12.10. We looked at this, I think, four weeks ago. Then I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the family of David and on the people of Jerusalem. This is when Christ returns. They will look on me whom they have pierced, and mourn for him as for an only son. They will grieve bitterly for him as a firstborn son who has died. When, when Luke saw this, when John said, they knew this applied to Jesus. Look at me. This was written hundreds of years before Christ was crucified. This is just one of those powerful prophecies. and We took a long time to deal with it. Now, go to Isaiah 66 and verse 8, because this is an important verse of Scripture. As we progress, why we should stand with Israel. Who has ever seen anything as strange as this? Who has ever heard of such a thing? Has a nation ever been born in a single day? Has a country ever come forth in a mere moment? This is a prophecy that has been fulfilled in our day. But let's move ahead to what Jesus says in Matthew 23, verse 39. He told these unbelieving Jews, You will never see me again until you say, Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a prophecy about his second return. Not the rapture, but his second return. What's going on here? What is this prophecy? What is Jesus saying? Well, there's this little verse of scripture that I think we need to look at tonight. We need to pray for the full number of Gentile believers to come in and for the hardening of Israel to be lifted. Paul references this when he says in Romans eleven twenty-five, 25, I want you to understand this mystery, dear brothers and sisters, so you'll not feel proud about yourselves. In other words, what he's saying here, look at me for just a second. He said, don't look down on Israel. Don't look down on Israel. Don't think you're better than Israel. Don't think you're better than a Jew. Matter of fact, don't think you're better than anybody else. Let it never be said of anybody from Woodland that we're holier than thou. He said, don't look down on Israel, but in context, he's talking about Israel. Some of the people of Israel have hard hearts, but this will last only until the full number of Gentiles come to Christ. If you read the King James Version, it'd be the age of the Gentiles. What is the age of the Gentiles? That's what Jesus was prophesying about, that the people rejected him. There was going to be this, remember Matthew 24 and 25, he says, flee flee you know there's a time of judgment coming on jerusalem rome would destroy jerusalem pull down the temple burn everything it was horrible time so paul is talking about this something has happened to israel the age of the gentiles now i've got to go real quickly through this but i'm going to give you a little brief history lesson and then in our q a you can ask me some more questions about it if you want to but real quickly i'm going to hit this the place of israel is a nation is a global issue with worldwide significance. The place of Israel as a nation is a global issue with worldwide significance. Why could such a tiny little, look at me, sliver, that's all it is, it's a sliver of land, continually be in the news, continually occupy finance stories, science stories, political stories, war stories? I mean, Israel is always in the news. Well, It's because it's a global issue with worldwide significance. The fulfillment of the end of the ages has already come upon us. But that time is going to end with this prophecy we looked at in Zechariah 14 and verse 2. And that is when God gathers all the nations to fight against Jerusalem. What's going on here? Number one, the prophet and the apostle Paul and Jesus want you to be put in mind that God promised the land of Israel to Abraham. God promised that land to Abraham. The Lord had said to Abraham, leave your native country, your relatives, your father's family, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you, make you famous. You will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you, curse those who treat you with contempt, and all families on earth will be blessed through you. What's he saying? Your family is gonna be a blessing to all the nations. And anyone that blesses you, I will bless them. And anyone who curses you, I will curse them. By the way, anyone who blesses you, God will bless. Anyone who curses you, God will curse because you're part of that ancestry of Abraham now because of faith. But the land is what we're looking at right here. Why stand with Israel? The land is what we're looking at. Did you know Israel is the only nation that exists in the world that we can trace with complete accuracy to the first Israelite? Who was the first Norwegian? Who was the first Hungarian, Paul? Who who was the first Italian, Vic? Who was the first American? Who was the first Englishman? We don't know. But we know who the first Jew was. It was Abraham. Abraham so we can trace with total accuracy the very first That's exciting. Somebody who loves history, that kind of lights my fire a little bit. I mean, this is significant. So the life lesson I want you to get here is God touches Abraham's heart before calling him to follow. So when you read this tonight, it's important for you. Ask God to touch your heart tonight. Make you sensitive and tender to these truths so that you can follow in blessing Israel and standing for Israel. Number two, God tells Abraham, the land will be his descendants, but will have to be reoccupied. The land will belong to his descendants, will have to be reoccupied. Look at Genesis 15. We're going to skip over a few chapters. And Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. Now, that goes all the way back to the beginning of the message tonight. Why you and I are true children of Abraham is because of faith. So the Lord made a covenant with Abraham that day and said, I have given this land to your descendants, all the way from the border of Egypt to the great Euphrates River. So, so look at me for just a moment. This is in perpetuity. God has given this land to Israel in perpetuity. I know you're thinking, well, why were they out of there for so long? I'm going to touch on it briefly. We'll talk about it some more in Q&A. The life lesson here is don't ever yield any part of your life to the enemy. Don't yield any part of your life to the enemy. Remember what I had you to write down a while ago. Rebellion will cost you the blessings of God. Disobedience will cost you the blessings of God. Number three, God makes a covenant about the land with Abraham. Genesis 17 and verse 8. And I will give the entire land where you now live as a foreigner to you and their, your descendants. It will be their possession forever and I will be their God. Now, he'll go on to say... They're going to be out of the land for 400 years. They're going to have to come back. They're going to have to reoccupy the land. But he also says in that covenant, if you read uh, Leviticus, excuse me, Exodus and Deuteronomy, he also says, if you disobey, the land will cast you out. If you disobey, I will drive you out of the land. Of course, that happened. So the life lessons, believe the promises of God for your family and hang on to them and trust them. So... The next thing I'd like you to see, and I know we're moving fast here, but I hope this is going to steer a lot of less uh, thoughts for you. The occupation of Israel in biblical times was Assyrian and Babylonian. From Genesis, excuse me, from from the from the book of, of Kings and Chronicles, the occupation you read about in the in those uh, uh, historical books. Is Assyrian and Babylonian. Now there's so many scriptures for that, I didn't put that in, but read you know Kings and Chronicles and you'll get that. Number five, the Romans were occupying the land in the life of Jesus, and through 1948, there was no Jewish rule of the land. Look at me for just a second. Don't let that miss you. From 1948, excuse me. From the time of Jesus till 1948, there was no more rule of the land. So when you read in Kings and Chronicles, that's what I meant by biblical times, you read about the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Then when you get to the Gospels, you read about the Romans being there. But in 1948, what happened? A land, a nation was born in a day. A nation was born in a day. Now, if that doesn't kind of stir you, just remember this because you've read about the Balfour Declaration. You've read about how the land of Israel came about after World War II. It was finally decided by the nations there had to be a safe place for the Jews. Remember this, the day before Israel was declared a nation as a Jew, if you were found carrying a gun, you would be arrested. The very next day when Israel became a nation, Six Arab nations declared war on them. They were surrounded by 4 million people that swore to destroy them, drive them into the sea. And there was only 630,000 Jewish people in the land. So a nation was born in the day. And many Jewish people are fully, fully convinced that God preserved them then and again in the 1967 war. This is what we're talking about, about the time of the Gentiles. Luke 21, verse 24, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So what do we do with this tonight? Number one, let's pray for the peace of Israel with thanksgiving. Pray for the peace of Israel with thanksgiving. Why? Romans 9, 4 through 5, they are the people of Israel, chosen to be God's adopted children. God revealed his glory to them, God made covenants with them. God gave them his law. God gave them the privilege to worship him and receiving his wonderful promises. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are their ancestors. And Christ himself was an Israelite as far as his human nature is concerned. And he is God, the one who rules over everything and is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. This might come as a surprise to former President Trump that Jesus chose not to be an American, but he chose to be a Jew. So in some ways, you know, Jesus didn't do it, but he could have popped a hat on his head and said, make Israel great again. Instead, what he said is he gave his life to die for our sins on the cross so that you and I could be saved. So the Bible tells us then in Psalms 122 and verse six, pray for peace in Jerusalem and may who, all who love this city prosper. Now, you might not know this. I, I've referenced this before, but Armageddon in 1948 was a mosquito. Infested swamp. And now it's one of the most beautiful agricultural spots you'd ever see. It's a place that feeds not just Israel, but feeds Arab peoples, it feeds Europeans, it feeds Africans. It's a beautiful, beautiful farmland. Israel literally took a wasteland where there were lots of hovels, made gardens out of it, caused the desert to blossom like a rose. And there was a time when I moved here, I remember reading an article when I moved here 23 years ago, that two jumbo jets a day left Israel carrying roses to the country, to the continent of Europe alone. Made the desert blossom like a rose. I think it's pretty phenomenal. Do you have a headache? Thank a man by the name of Bear, who is Jewish. Have you been treated for with a, a, a chemotherapy? Thank another man who is Jewish by the name of Ehrlich. Have you had Novocaine when you've been to the dentist and you don't have to endure that drilling pain? think another man by the name of Stryker, a Jewish man who created that. Think about polio, Jonas Salk. Think about vitamins, discovered and developed by a Jewish physician called Funk. Think about the I don't know if they still had to do it, but when Becky and I got married, we had to take a venereal disease test That was, the, uh, was demanded by the state of Georgia. That was developed by a Jewish man named Wasserman. When you think about the American Medical Association, that was created by a Jewish man named Hayes. When you think about the theory of relativity, it was created by someone named Einstein. Is that just coincidental that this tiny little group of people that 23 years ago when I moved here, and I haven't checked lately, there were only 12 million Jews living in the world at the time. The The metropolitan area of Detroit, I think is probably larger than that. To stand with Israel, though, does not mean we oppose Arab people or we oppose the rights of Arabs living in Israel to a peaceful, politically secure, and prosperous life. Now, that's an important statement. And i if I have any of my Muslim friends who are watching, any of my Arab friends who are watching, and I know some of you do sometimes because you tell me, to stand with Israel politically doesn't mean we oppose Arab people doesn't mean we oppose Arab rights or Palestinian rights, where they're they're being unlawfully denied their rights. But this I know from talking to people that live in Israel. And that is Arab people who have told me, I would rather live in Israel than any other Arab nation, because here I'm free to speak my mind. Here I'm free to vote. So, but we have to be careful. This is not about Immigrants, this is not about Arabs, but this is about God's plan for Israel. The hatred of Israel is not just political, but the hatred of Israel is spiritual. It's motivated by spiritual powers of darkness, for we're not fighting against flesh and blood, enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places." So all of this hatred, because most of the time, if I'm not mistaken, and you correct me if I'm wrong, I'm ready to hear from you online as well. Most of the time when you're about Israel and the popular media, whether it's CNN or ABC or the New York Times, and you know I, I, I scan all of these every single day, they're being critical of Israel. Uh, You know, and and I'm not defending anything Israel does wrong. If Israel does something wrong, Israel needs to be called accountable for it just like anybody else. But I never hear being talked about the good that the Israelis have contributed to the rest of the world. And we as Christians have to be careful that we don't buy into a line of theology that would make us anti-Semitic, but that we bless Israel. And by the way, in closing, those same dark powers are equally opposed to gospel-believing churches. I can tell you right now, the powers of hell hate this message as much as they hate me preaching about the cross. Because this reminds Satan, this reminds this evil fallen world, that day of judgment. Remember we just read about the terrors of that coming day? It's coming. I'm looking forward to the catching away of the saints. I'm looking forward to the sounding of the trumpet. And I see it's getting dark outside and there's a storm coming. So before you get home, you may be caught up in the air (laughs) together with the Lord. So there's a dark cloud on the horizon. Let me pray, and we're going to get out of this place unless you want to stay and talk tonight for a little longer. Jesus, we love you with all of our hearts. We pray for the peace of Israel. We pray, Lord, that we will be wise and discerning. God, sometimes people ask me why I don't preach on this more. Father... You've not called me to preach on this, but you've called me to preach the cross of Christ, to preach the gospel. This is just a part of the gospel. Lord, we bless Israel. We pray for Israel, but we remember the cross that Jew and Gentile alike are saved only through the name and the blood of Jesus Christ. For it's in your name I pray. Amen. Amen and amen. God bless you. Thanks so much for joining us tonight.